We'll hear argument first this morning in number 92-989, Tennessee against Donald Ray Middlebrooks. Uh, General Burson. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. We ask the court today to reverse the judgment of the Tennessee Supreme Court vacating the sentence of death imposed by a jury on Donald Middlebrooks. The Tennessee death penalty system achieves the goal of rational and principled sentencing in which only those truly deserving of the death penalty suffer the imposition of death. The central procedural components of the system are narrowing, particularized, and individualized considerations at the penalty phase and proportionality review on direct appeal. In Tennessee... Have you ever held that proportionality review is constitutionally required? Your Honor, the, the comparative uh, proportionality uh, review, I think this court has said, is not constitutionally required. The Tennessee Supreme Court indicated that it undertakes both types, traditional proportionality as well as comparative proportionality review. So you're just describing the Tennessee yes. system now? Yes. In Tennessee, narrowing first occurs when murderers who might otherwise be eligible as capital offenders are excluded by definition from the class of first-degree murders. It next occurs when the legislature defines specific circumstances of first-degree murder for which death may be imposed. Unless the jury finds beyond a reasonable doubt that such a circumstance exists, they cannot impose death. This is the means of channeling the jury's discretion so as to reduce the likelihood of death being imposed for irrelevant or constitutionally impermissible factors such as race. It's the state's position that Tennessee's felony murder narrowing device serves this purpose in a rational, principled, and constitutionally sufficient manner. It is rational and that it clearly, objectively, and specifically identifies circumstances of first-degree murder that do not embrace all first-degree murders. Do you have any uh, idea, uh, General Person, of the percentage of first-degree murders that are, are not subject to the capital uh, sentencing procedure? Uh, do, do you have those statistics? No, or can uh, you Justice Kennedy, and we've, we've tried to kind of run those down, and they're very, uh, very elusive. The classes that would not be subject to first-degree murder would be simple intent murders, as well as those who murder not in the course of a felony that might be extremely reckless, and they would be pre-excluded from the class of uh, uh, first-degree murder. But you can't give us any idea of the percentage of the total universe of first-degree murders that the uh, excluded portion consists of? No. General Burson, how are you defining first-degree murder uh, if, if a simple intent murder, murder comes within first-degree murder? No, simple intent murder does not come within... Uh, First-degree murder in Tennessee... I thought you said a moment ago that it did. Oh, no, it's excluded by definition from first-degree murder. I said that that is a group of murderers that might otherwise uh, be eligible for a capital offense, but that are excluded from the definition of first-degree murder. Well, what, is, what, what, do you, what do you mean by simple intent murder? Just, what is it? Well, I mean that... Um, no intent to kill? Well, that you have an intent... No, that you have an intent to kill as distinguished from premeditated, uh, deliberate, and willful. Tennessee has actually uh, construed, for instance, a deliberated that you've got to have a very cool purpose, 
premeditated cannot be formed in an instant. It has to be formed uh, in, in some period of time beyond an instant. Uh, and, and so it would appear that a, what we would think of as a straight intent murder uh, with intent formed in an instant, which many jurisdictions uh, allow under premeditation, would be precluded. In, in other words, the murders that are eligible are all premeditated murders and all felony murders. That's correct. Yeah. And in the felony murder category, as the statute was in, at the time of this crime, did not require intent to kill. Is that right? That's correct. It's our position that the um, circumstance is rational and that it clearly, objectively, and specifically identifies circumstances of first-degree murder that don't embrace all first-degree murders. It's principled in that it's justifying... Again, you say the circumstances of first-degree murder that don't embrace all first-degree murders. What first-degree murders are not embraced? Premeditated uh, and deliberate murders are not embraced, and also today child abuse murders are not embraced by the felony murder aggravating circumstance. Oh, by the felony murder aggravating... I'm sorry for the confusion, Mr. Chief Justice. But 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 all all first-degree murders are potentially eligible. Everything that Tennessee defines as a first-degree murder is potentially eligible. Yes, Justice. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. The each, if if you're convicted of the offense of first degree murder, uh, the jury has two choices: life or death. That's the same. So there's no narrowing at that stage. All first degree, everyone that's eligible for a first degree murder, and everyone convicted of a first degree murder, whether felony murder or premeditated murder, is eligible for for the death penalty. And all of the narrowing goes on at the sentencing stage. Is that right? That's correct. Not entirely correct, General Burson. Certainly there are some homicides that are not death eligible in Tennessee, are there not? Yes, and I, I, this, Mr. Chief Justice, is a point I'm trying to make. What Basically what Tennessee does, it describes first-degree murder, which are premeditated murders and felony murders. All other homicides, all other murders fall below the line into second-degree murder, and none of those are... Uh, is it possible to impose the death penalty? So it would be perfectly proper to say that there is some narrowing there, would there not? Yes, yes. All right, now, in terms of those that are above the line, um, with respect to the felony murder category, I take it you, you agree that the felony murder aggravator, so-called, does no further narrowing. We, we, we don't have any disagreement about that, do we? It, it narrows the class of first-degree murders. Yes. It, once, it is, once, the, once the murder is classified as a felony uh, murder, once the jury has come in with a verdict to felony murder yes. as opposed to premeditated murder, uh, then the possible application later of the felony murder aggravator, so-called, does not narrow that subset of first-degree murders, i.e. felony murders, any further. That's correct. We, we agree on that. Yes. And as I understand, your position is the... Uh, there is a further narrowing which is constitutionally sufficient, and that further narrowing uh, is the result of applying, in effect, the, the, the Tyson standard, the, the, the threshold proportionality standard that Tyson imposed, right? That certainly occurs uh, independent of the aggravator, and we would contend it also occurs uh, during the uh, penalty phase when the jury considers all of the factors that an additional narrowing takes place. But in terms of the recklessness standard, that's constitutionally required by 
Tyson, and it does restrict uh, the state's ability to impose death on, on anyone who does not meet that standard. Well, is it your position that the, that the application of the Tyson standard satisfies the, the constitutional requirement um, uh, of, of narrowing? Once that, once that standard has been applied, no further narrowing need take place constitutionally. Is that your position? Our position is that the entire system well, accomplishes can, can that. Me, as an aggravator, yes. General, please, can, can you give me a yes or no answer? Is it constitutionally sufficient to apply the Tyson standard such that no further narrowing is constitutionally required? Yes. All right. Does it follow from that, then, that no narrowing need take place in the category of premeditated murders? Because I assume premeditated murders uh, at least satisfy the, the kind of uh, proportionality threshold that Tyson was trying to get at. Maybe and, and maybe not, if I could explain. The issue with premeditated murder would be different than the issue of felony murder. The issue with premeditated murder may well be a vagueness issue depending on how narrowly the state would define its premeditated class. Well, you, not do you think that your premeditated class is, is vaguely defined? I think in, uh, in recent months the uh, Tennessee Supreme Court has uh, begun to very narrowly define premeditated murder, and uh, I think it is possible that uh, it would serve as a, uh, could serve as a valid aggravating circumstance. So that, so that again, if, if, if it satisfies premeditated, if the class of premeditated murder is so defined as to pass muster under Tyson, no further narrowing would be required constitutionally. Under, uh, yes, under Tyson and under Creech and uh, Godfrey. So Tyson has basically, on your view, superseded the narrowing requirement, hasn't it? No, if that is via Tyson, you're, you're home free so far as narrowing is. No, if, if, if I might explain, and I, I think it's important, we're, we're looking at an entire system. The aggravating circumstance has the purpose of narrowing from the entire class of, of we're saying, first-degree murders. Now, it does that, and it has to be do that in a principled, uh, a principled rationale. And those, this court, I think, has found that the Eighth Amendment requires deterrence or, or retribution uh, as the principal basis for that narrowing. Tyson is a component of the system, which is, is more or less the safety net that cuts across the entire system. It is not a narrowing device necessarily unto itself. It sets a substantive constitutional threshold below which uh, no one uh, for, for felony murder can be sentenced uh, to death. Well, intent murders would, would uh, what you have called simple intent murders would satisfy Tyson. Yes, I don't even think they would be included in Tyson. Tyson was addressing the, the participation of an accomplice in a felony murder. All right, but the, I, I would take it that as a general proposition, all first-degree murders uh, uh, would... Uh, oh, let's, let's just stick to premeditated for a moment. I would say as a general proposition that all premeditated murders uh, would satisfy uh, Tyson's threshold requirement. Would, would you agree? Yes, but again, I'd, unless a premeditated mm -hmm. murder were a, a felony murder, Tyson really is well, isn't premeditated by at least by the Tennessee definition is is not a could not be a felony murder. I mean, felony murder is not defined that way. Well, but a pre uh, someone could kill in a premeditated fashion and in the course of a felony. And just be convicted of felony murder. Yes. yes. Or they could be convicted of of premeditated murder and be subject to the felony murder aggravating. Term. All right. In which case, but but that's not the case before us. Because
because in that case, a, a further narrowing would in fact be taking place. So go back to the go back to the premeditated murder category itself. Uh, as a general proposition, you agree that that would satisfy Tyson. Yes. All right. We've discussed it. Then does it not follow from the position you're taking with respect to Tyson's application to felony murder that no further narrowing need take place uh, in the premeditated murder category because it satisfies Tyson? I would not agree because it satisfies Tyson, but I would agree that you could have, in the way we've discussed it, a premeditated aggravating circumstance. Well, so there's one thing I'm just not getting then. If, if, if Tyson is not sufficient in premeditated, why is Tyson sufficient to satisfy narrowing in felony murder? Or do I misunderstand your position that it is? Justice Souter, I guess, and, and I don't mean to pick this point, but Tyson... Uh, as we have read it, is a case involving uh, the standard, the threshold standard for felony murders and participants in felony murder, not premeditated murders. And that's no, but it's applying, it's applying an Eighth Amendment threshold, and the Eighth Amendment threshold would apply to, to any case, wouldn't it? Correct. Well, it would, it, it would an, intent, an intent murder or a premeditated murder, by the very definition, uh, ex- exceeds the, ty- the Tyson standard of, uh, of recklessness. Exactly. So that if Tyson is, is your means of satisfying for felony murder and a premeditated murder always exceeds the Tyson threshold, then doesn't it follow that there need be no further narrowing in a premeditated murder case? Or I, have, I, have said that I have said that's what I have said. That's, that, that's, that's correct. It. Okay. Yeah. General... First, and maybe uh, I can ask the same question this way. You don't need any aggravator other than the crime that fits within the Tennessee statute plus Tyson for felony murder. That's it. You you said premeditated is a higher, kind of a higher category, and yet you do need an aggravator under the Tennessee law for premeditated murder. That's the, the, the strange, you say number one is premeditated murder, number two is felony murder. For felony murder, you don't have to prove anything other than the felony murder itself with the Tyson qualifications. For premeditated murder, you do. What, yeah. what, what is the rationale for that? Justice Ginsburg, uh, I think we're talking about premeditated, the mens rea of intent. Felony murder would encompass reckless, extremely reckless murders, as well as those who would intend. So in comparing a recklessness mens rea, so to speak, against a premeditated mens rea, the level of intent uh, would have to uh, be greater for premeditated murder. However, the level of culpability, these are all first-degree murder offenses. The level of culpability is um, comparable for premeditated murders and for felony murders. And what the legislature in Tennessee has determined is that deterrence serves as a justifying rationale to create an aggravating circumstance of felony murder um, as, as a class of murders. And they have come to that conclusion with certain types of premeditated murders, such as a police murder, state attorney general murder, uh, that sort of thing, which are purely based upon uh, deterrent reasons. But when, when I suggest that the premeditated standard as 
intent and deliberateness and coolness is higher than recklessness. I only mean as a mens rea, uh, not in terms of culpability. So at the, the sentencing stage, felony murder is considered the graver offense than premeditated, because it doesn't need any additional aggravator. Is that? It is considered the offense that the General Assembly has determined they have a reasonable, uh, a reasonable uh, chance of deterring by increasing the severity of the penalty uh, to death. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it's more severe in, 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 in another manner, uh, except that I think they could also conclude that the extent of harm uh, in, in a felony murder is greater than in a straight premeditated murder. Those are the rationale that this court has looked at in terms of defining the aggravating circumstance. It's our position that the uh, Tennessee General Assembly has determined that as to felony murders. And at the general level of definition, but that's General, all they're required to do. General Burson, when did the Tennessee the General Assembly make this determination? When was this statute that's an issue in this case passed? Uh, this statute, uh, I think, was in uh, 77 or so. And so if this, what if this murder had taken place before 1987, when Tyson was uh, decided? Say you had this very same set of facts in 1980. Could you have then defended this, uh, this scheme as constitutional? Because there's nothing in the Tennessee statute that requires recklessness. I think that uh, the recklessness component of it certainly uh, gives it. Uh, a, where does the recklessness? Where does the requirement to satisfy a recklessness uh, component come from? Isn't it Tyson? It comes from yes. So if we didn't have Tyson on the books, and which wasn't decided until 1987, your statute was then unconstitutional, I assume. It became well, constitutional when Tyson to the, decided. Yeah. To the extent it would have applied to one who act less than recklessness, and and uh, we also have because Inman. we have no finding of recklessness in this case, do we? Uh, no, but I there think no such the, instruction. the the uh, we don't. But the court made it very clear, the Tennessee Supreme Court, that it would perform this type of uh, proportionality review. And I think this court said in Cavana v. Bullock that that proportionality review was not required by the jury. Um, that it was sufficient if the appellate court uh, applied the Tyson standard. If you would carry Justice Stevens' analogy back, uh, you might say that uh, before this court decided Enman in 1983, maybe from 1977 to 1983, the statute was constitutional. From 1983 to 1987, it wasn't, and after 1987, it is. Well, yes, and, and the Tennessee Supreme Court... We, we don't know whether your Supreme Court might not have read in the, the Tyson requirement on its own, do we? Do, do we have any cases in which your Supreme Court declined to read in Tyson before before we did? Um, I mean, you claim, I, I, you claim they've gone further than we have in the present case. Uh, uh, surely they might on their own have gone as far as Tyson Honor, before I, we did. I, I can't say that they addressed that, uh, but the, the... But at least it isn't the Tennessee legislature that required the recklessness requirement. That much we all agree on, I guess. No, no, I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying the Tennessee legislature applied the uh, deterrent rationale to making felony murder an aggravating circumstance. The Tennessee uh, Supreme Court, <coughs> excuse me, did address the question of the relative culpability of 
premeditated murder and felony murder, didn't it? And, and it found them uh, uh, equal uh, in culpability under the statute, didn't it? Correct, and we would agree that they are equal. Well, in aren't you, doesn't that then go back to Justice Ginsburg's question of a moment ago? How do you explain the fact uh, that of two categories uh, of murder of equal culpability, um, the, uh, the defendants convicted in the one category, uh, premeditated, require, uh, are subject to a narrowing requirement, and those uh, in, in the second category, felony, are not? Justice Souter, our position is that the Eighth Amendment allows an aggravator to have as a justifying rationale Terrence well, or retribution. You, so you do not have to set up an aggravator based upon culpability. I'm, I'm, maybe I don't under, understand your answer, but it doesn't seem to me that that responds to the question. You're still, under your law, engaging in a narrowing function with respect to one category, and you're not engaging in a narrowing function with respect to the other. Is, is, is let, that right? Let me see if I could respond this way. If the two categories in the Tennessee system were premeditated murder and the killing of two or more persons, it would be perfectly rational to have as an aggravating circumstance uh, the killing of two or more persons as you did in Lowenfield. Um, and, and so it's what, what you have to look at is if for an aggravator, we would suggest, is the, are the objective criteria that circumscribe the class of first-degree murders. In this case, it's the conduct of uh, felony murder. I still don't, maybe I'm missing it, I don't think you've answered Justice Ginsburg's question. If you are, maybe I don't understand uh, the question. I thought her question was, in any case my question is, uh, as, as the Supreme Court of Tennessee has construed it, the two subcategories of first-degree murder of equal culpability. Isn't that, is that correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, and you narrow uh, those convicted in the one category. You don't of uh, those convicted in the, in the other. How do you explain the fact that you don't? I don't know how to say it any other way than I have said it. They have narrowed it and decided on, on, on felony murder as an aggravator based upon the rationale of deterrence. Um, and, and that's the basis on which the legislature has, has, has done this. And that this court, is Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, says that's fine as far as aggravating circumstances. Well, you say that that, ag, that, 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 that ag, uh, aggravating circumstance is not constitutionally required anyway. If they do it for the one but not for the other, they do it voluntarily and without federal constitutional compulsion for the one. You, you've said that they don't need that further aggravator anyway. No, then I, I was misunderstood. I think there needs to be yeah, there needs one of the early questions. I thought you said it was an, I thought you said it was enough simply to have first degree murder defined the way your state defines it. And then and you would oh, not have, oh, I have see, any I see. further aggravating circumstance at all. I, th I think under under Lowenfield that is that's right. Possible. So, so yes. then yes. whatever aggravating, even if if, if Justice uh, Souter's uh, uh, is correct that you have an aggravating circumstance for, for the one type of first-degree murder, but not for the other, it is not an aggravating circumstance, in your view, that is required by the federal Constitution. It's one that Tennessee chose to create on its I, own. I think under Lowenfield that's correct. But once you have, once you have an aggravator, don't you have to have some, some rationale for having it in the one case and not in the other? I, I, I would suggest that not if it's uh, not as a constitutional proposition, not if it's not constitutionally required. 
Um, I thought your whole position here was that uh, felony is itself a discrete category, which is a sufficient aggravator. It I, is. I don't know why you're, you're running away from that just a little bit in response to Justice Souter and Justice Ginsburg's question. A felony murder is itself a separate evil that the state can punish in an aggravating way because a felony is involved. Justice Kennedy, uh, I, mean, I agree with that. Your position. that. That is my position. And where, where it seems to me we are, it, it, this, we're elevating almost form over substance. I think this is what Lowenfield got away from. The point is that if we narrow, either through the definitional stage or if it's as an aggravator, if we narrow a, a, the circumstances, as Justice Kennedy has noted, and that is a sufficiently discrete sort of set of circumstances to guide the jury's discretion, and that's what we're after, that is what, uh, that's what the Constitution requires. But then do you contend it would be constitutional to have uh, death penalty imposed for felony murder that the only intent, there's no recklessness involved, the only intent was to commit a robbery? Would that be constitutional? To commit a robbery, then you mean, and, the robbery. And you are an, an accomplice, uh, or you are the killer? You are the, a robber, and in the course of the robbery, maybe you stumble and you accidentally uh, shoot the gun and the man gets killed. That's a clear case of felony murder with no intent to kill, no recklessness, let's assume. Would you say that could be constitutionally, could constitutionally support the death penalty? Under your answer to Justice Kennedy, I think you'd say yes. As, as the court's formulation of, of, of the uh, standard is now, uh, yes, uh, because the court just says you uh, have to, under the Inman standard, you only have to kill, and it doesn't require, the court hasn't addressed a particular standard. Uh, but clearly an accomplice would have to at least be reckless before that would happen. But if you kill... I'm assuming no recklessness on the part of the killer. He just had an intent to commit the felony. And all of the deterrence rationale you've talked about would apply there. It's hard for me to, to believe that the court would not apply that same recklessness standard, and I would suggest that that probably uh, uh, that's would the, not That's be the extent of your narrowing requirement under your, your statute. All you have to do is be a participant in a felony murder where all you intended to do was to commit the felony. Yes, and that's overlaid with this court's jurisprudence on, uh, on uh, recklessness. May I save the balance of my time for rebuttal, please? Very well, General Burson. Uh, Mr. Stebbins, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to start by clarifying a, a few points of Tennessee law, if I might. First-degree murder in Tennessee is defined as felony murder or premeditated murder. All first-degree murders are death-eligible, but no first-degree murder can be sentenced to death absent proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a aggra statutory aggravating circumstance. All 12 of the aggravating circumstances require proof of additional elements for persons convicted of premeditated murder. Eleven of the statutory aggravating circumstances require proof of additional elements for persons convicted of felony murder. Only with the felony murder aggravating circumstance is there the automatic elevation of one class of murderers into being subject to the death penalty um, above the other class without proof of anything further. Uh, two other points is... Um, well, is, is your point that that's, uh, that that's uh, um, irrational and, and, and therefore doesn't, doesn't meet rational basis review? Well, I think my point is that the Tennessee, this is what the Tennessee Supreme Court 
found to violate the Tennessee Constitution. The fact that this one class is automatically elevated, this one class is defined, excuse me, to be the morally culpably equivalent class. Well, but does it violate the federal Constitution so long as the narrowing within the definition of first-degree murder is alone enough to comply with our narrowing requirement? No, I believe it does, because the problem is we're not just talking about narrowing here, but some principled narrowing. And this is exactly what... Well, that's your point, that it's unprincipled and fails rational basis review. Yes, it fails. The last case of ours that held a state statute failed rational basis review. I can't point you to a case, Your Honor, but looking at what the Tennessee... Many moons. It's been a long time. That may be, but the Tennessee Supreme Court here has found that it violates Article I, Section 16 of the Tennessee Constitution. They've also made that finding as an independent finding, independent of any Eighth Amendment analysis. Well, you're free to find that it violates the Tennessee Constitution. That's not what we're discussing here. We're discussing whether it violates the federal Constitution. If we find that it doesn't, Tennessee can find it to violate its Constitution whatever way it wants. I think we're just discussing the federal issues here, aren't we? I understand that, but the point I would like to make first, Your Honor, if I may, is that this is an independent state ground that the Tennessee Supreme Court has relied on. Two of the three in the majority said this holding based on Article I, Section 16 of the Tennessee Constitution. So two of them put it squarely and apparently solely on the Tennessee Constitution, but they concurred in the principal opinion, which puts it on both grounds. But I think, Your Honor, that under the majority opinion, that there are alternative, independent, adequate state grounds. At page 49 and 50 of the appendix to the petition for cert, the Court makes a very clear state law finding. It says, and I quote, Our legislature, however, has seen fit to prohibit such duplication by statute in non-capital sentencing. And we are of the opinion that Article I, Section 16 of the Tennessee Constitution prohibits such duplication in capital sentencing as well. This conclusion they reach by looking only at the Tennessee sentencing statutes for non-capital cases, looking at the capital sentencing procedures in Tennessee, and looking at the Tennessee Constitution. There is no mention at this point of the federal Constitution or any federal case law. Because of that, this is an independent and adequate state ground, and this, which allows, excuse me, which prevents this Court from hearing the case because of the independence and adequacy of the state ground. And if you look also at the second portion of the Court's opinion concerning the narrowing, the Court specifically rejects federal case law, the rationale of federal case law in Loanfield. Mr. Stebbins, can I just interrupt you to suggest you made a motion on this point that I think the Court denied, and your position is fully stated in your briefs. I wonder if you're making the best use of your time. I just wanted to make a couple quick points on it, Your Honor, because at least in one other case I'm familiar with, this case in a similar situation, Ohio v. Huertas, just a couple terms ago, did dismiss the writ after argument, and most of the argument was based on a state law analysis. But I will be very brief, Your Honor. But I would just like to make the point that in the second part of the opinion, 
that they reject the rationale as Lowenfield is finding it in a posit under the Tennessee Constitution. Under the Tennessee Constitution, adopt the rationale of the non-federal rationale announced in Cherry, in uh, Englewood, and in Collins. The page you're referring to in, in the appendix to the petition? Um, excuse me, Your Honor. I'll the page 61 and 62, A61 and 62 of the uh, appendix to the petition for cert. Um, the Tennessee Supreme Court has found that the treatment of the felony murderer separately and differently than the equivalently defined premeditated murders is irrational under the Tennessee Constitution. And I would submit that it's equally irrational under the Eighth Amendment. It, I noticed that Tennessee has, one, as one of its aggravating factors, the killing of a, a child under 12 years of age. That's correct, Your Honor. If uh, someone kills an 11-year-old, can they argue under your theory that um, really it's irrational to distinguish between someone who kills an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old? Under my theory, no, I don't think so. What, what's my the rationality is, there that's not present here? Well, there you've, you've got something that is different from the crime itself. The problem with the felony murder aggravator in Tennessee is it defines the crime of first-degree murder. First-degree murder in Tennessee is a, a murder committed during the course of a felony. You find that, the jury finds that, and they find the person guilty of first-degree murder. The jury is then told... But that's only one type of first-degree murder. That's correct. So you have an aggravator which, in effect, says this one type of, of, of first-degree murder is worse than the other type of first-degree murder. It's still an aggravator, however. Now, you may argue that that isn't a rather sloppy way of achieving that result, but can you say that the result is irrational? The state has decided that of the two types of murder that fall within first degree, one is worse than the other, and they, they choose to make that uh, uh, determination by declaring that whole class to be an aggravator. I agree it's logically pretty sloppy, but I don't know that it's irrational. Well, and, and I should think it's eminently more rational than the 11-year-old, 12-year-old dichotomy because the state is interested in deterring felonies. Well, as the Tennessee Supreme Court found, though, that the Tennessee legislature has defined felony murders and premeditated murders to be equally culpable. They are guilty of first-degree murders. Then automatically, not by any operation, just by the operation of the statute, the felony murders are elevated up to be subject to the death penalty when premeditated murders that the Tennessee Supreme Court views as equally culpable or perhaps even more culpable are not treated worse. And the well, where do you work? What cases of ours do you rely on for the proposition that there is this sort of rationality requirement in the Eighth Amendment? Well, just last term in, in Arave versus Creech, this court held that there was where an aggravating circumstance serves to distinguish those who are sentenced to death from those who are not, that the aggravating circumstance must genuinely narrow on a principal basis. And the Tennessee Supreme Court essentially here has said this is not principled. And that's where you derive the rationality requirement from in the Eighth Amendment? For one, Your Honor, yes. And I, I think also in Zant versus Stevens, this court addressed that the aggravating circumstances where they are used to narrow the class of persons eligible for the death penalty must have some rational penological basis. They must satisfy one of the concerns 
um, of this court expressed in Furman that the death penalty not be imposed in an arbitrary or capricious manner. Evans, maybe it would be better if we would to deal with a concrete case and to talk in these abstract categories. And let me tell you one that, that has been on my mind. Let's take a robbery of a home. And the robber in case number one intentionally kills the homeowner in that process. And then case number two is a robbery and the robber recklessly kills the homeowner in that process. And the second case on your rationale could not attract the death penalty. Let's assume there's no other aggravator, just the, the felony. But the first one could. Why does it make, why do you um, come say, say that that's rational? Well, first of all, I, 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 I think that's incorrect under what I'm saying. I think in both of those situations, a person could be sentenced to death because you have a felony plus an intentional or premeditated murder. No, 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 no. In the, in the felony murder case, you don't have any premeditated. You have a reckless murder in conjunction with a felony. Your argument is that that person cannot be subjected to the death penalty. But the premeditated murder with a felony could be. Yes, but the premeditated murder or with nothing else, without the additional felony, could not be sentenced to death. I'm asking you why in those two concrete situations, it isn't perfectly logical, rational to treat them the same. I'd say that both subject well, to the death penalty. Very simply, in, in the one hypothetical, Your Honor, you've got, as I understand it, perhaps I misunderstand your hypothetical, but you've got premeditation and something else. You have a felony. In the second hypothetical, you have no premeditation, no intent, or perhaps reckless intent, and you have the commission of a felony which raises it up to be the equivalent of premeditated murder in the first place. And you have nothing in addition to, to distinguish that murderer from, from the first murderer or to make him worse. But why can't the state think in terms of dangerousness, in ter terms of deterrent, it wants to deter that reckless action as much as the premeditated action? Th that's my point exactly, Your Honor. If they are treated equally, then I would have no complaint here, but they're not. They're treating the reckless. And first of all, if I may make a point, is that in this case, and prior to 1989 in Tennessee, there was no reckless requirement. Yeah, no but reckless in my hypothetical, you are not treating them equally, and you say that's, that's okay. And that, that I don't understand. Reckless plus robbery, no death penalty. Premeditated plus robbery, death penalty. That's what you say uh, is is fair and rational? Yes. I mean, the, the problem I, I, I'm making, though, is that not the premeditation plus robbery. The premeditated murder with nothing else would, would satisfy the death penalty, would get a death penalty here. Reckless, which only becomes the equivalent of a premeditated murder because it was committed during the course of a robbery, is then automatically subjected to the death penalty, whereas with the premeditated murder, 
It was all, already all by itself a, a highly culpable crime because of the definition of premeditation. Your, your point is that it's irrational, constitutionally impermissible for the state to say premeditated and reckless are on the same line. It's, no, I'm sorry, Your Honor, that's not my point. My point is it's, it's constitutionally impermissible to treat the reckless murderer worse than the premeditated murderer. Is he reckless? In, in, in my hypothetical, you're saying it, it's necessary to comport with the Constitution to treat the felony murderer better, not equally, but better. I, because I, in, in my hypothetical, the premeditated robber is subject to the death penalty. The reckless robber is not. So the reckless robber is being treated better, not the same. But the, the premeditated robber is being treated worse because of there's an additional element proven in the crime, the robbery. With the reckless robber, he is being elevated already to being the equivalent of the premeditated murder merely by the use of the robbery. And then he's elevated up above that by the use of the robbery also. A reckless murder by itself without the robbery would not be death eligible in Tennessee. Only because it's committed during the course of a felony does a reckless or unintentional murder become the equivalent of, first, of premeditated murder in the first place. Uh, you would agree, would you not, in, in my two hypothetical cases, that your answer is yes, in that situation, you must favor the felony murderer by making that reckless uh, robber not subject to the death penalty where the premeditated robber is. I, I, again, Your Honor, I, I, I appear to be missing your point on this, or I'm not explaining myself well. If you have a premeditated murder, if I may make a hypothetical, all by well, itself. Well, why don't you just stick with my hypothetical and, and tell me. We have a, a robbery of a home. The homeowner is killed. In one case, the killing was premeditated, and the other one, it's reckless. I take it on your argument that the state could not constitutionally subject the reckless robber to the death penalty. Or I'm misunderstanding your argument. No, I, I believe that's correct, Your Honor. But the state could subject the premeditated robber to the that death is, penalty. That's so correct, Your Honor. If the, if the yes to those questions are both, then you're saying it's constitutionally required to favor the felony murderer. Again, it's not favoring the felony, reckless felony murderer, Your Honor. The reckless felony murderer goes in to rob the home with no intent is raised up to be the equivalent of the premeditated murder merely by the proof of the robbery. The premeditated murderer all by itself is death eligible. The reckless killer is not death eligible absent adding the robbery on top of that. That raises it up to be first-degree murder. Well, you're, you're saying that in, in a, let's take a totally hypothetical situation, uh, uh, un, unlike Tennessee, that a state can, cannot make a felony murder uh, that qualifies under Tyson's recklessness. They cannot make that uh, a, a capital offense uh, without some aggravating circumstance? I believe that's true, Your Honor, and I also believe... Now, what case would you rely on for that? Uh, Your Honor, I, I would say that if you look at this Court's holding in all of its holdings from, like, Greg and, and Zant and 
streets uh, last year, whenever there has been a definition by a state that is as broad as this, it includes felony murder with no intent, it includes plain premeditated murder as uh, the basis for death eligibility, that every state where this court has looked at has required proof of some well, additional... But I asked you for, for a case from this court that supports the proposition, the answer that you just gave. And to say that the states have required something more doesn't necessarily mean that the Constitution requires it. I, I believe, though, if, if you look at this, this court's opinion in Lowenfield, for example, Lowenfield says the, the states may do two things. They may broadly define death-eligible crimes, they broadly define them, i.e. saying felony murder or premeditation, then they must have an aggravating circumstance that narrows the class. Or they may very narrowly define the, the class of death-eligible murders, as Texas and Louisiana have done. If they do that, then there is no constitutional requirement for further narrowing. Well, so, but don't you think it represents a sufficient narrowing uh, in the terms of that Lowenfeld used that, if they say, if the state says, from all homicides, uh, we are going to choose uh, premeditated murder and uh, felony murder that meets the Tyson qualification. And we're not going to have aggravating circumstances. We're going to let you show all the mitigating evidence you want. This, this court simply has never approved such a Well, it may never approved, but has it ever disapproved it? No, the state has never disapproved it either. But, again, if you look at this last term in, in, in Creech, this court analyzed the Idaho statute and looked at it and declared it very broad. And the court went on to look at the aggravating circumstance that was at issue in that case and found that under the Idaho um, scheme and under the Eighth Amendment that it was necessary for the... Um, the aggravated circumstance to narrow that class of death-eligible people. Yes. We don't need aggravating circumstances at all. I mean, we've said you can narrow. You don't have to narrow at the jury stage. You can narrow at the definition stage. So we don't really need aggravating circumstances. Isn't that right? If, if the definition is sufficiently narrow. Well, let, let's, let's assume that what, what Tennessee has is this situation. It defines first-degree murder as all murder that is committed with intent or reckless disregard. All killing with intent or reckless disregard. And then it, it defines as aggravating circumstances. Premeditation or felony murder. Murder in the course of a felony. Would that be constitutional in your... In I, I No, it would not, Your Honor. It would not... It, it would not. Why? It would not... Two reasons. One, it would not narrow the class at all. It would include every one of those persons, basically. What? 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 Every, every killing that is done with intent or res reckless disregard is done with either meditation or in the course of, a, of another felony? Now is it a lot, it seems to me. Perhaps I misunderstood your hypothetical. I thought you defined it so that that was It's a very broad definition of, of first-degree murder. It includes all murder with intent or with reckless disregard. The case goes to the jury, and the jury, and, and the jury is told... You may impose death if you find an aggravating circumstance of premeditation or of uh, killing in the course of a felony. I don't believe that this court would find that that provides adequate guidance for the jury or sufficiently narrowed the class. I, no case this court has held since 1972 has found... Well, that's the right answer for your case. I mean, you, you would have to say that that's bad. 
in order to say that this is bad, because what this boils down to is the same thing. Yeah, the question is, how broadly... Mr. Stebbins, I thought Tennessee had not opened up every felony murder to the death penalty, but only the, the commission of murder in the course of committing certain named felonies. That's correct, Your Honor. There's so there has been a narrowing. It isn't all felonies. It is certain named felonies. There has been, yes, it, not every felony is included in that. But every, every felony that is included in the definition of first-degree murder is also included in the aggravating circumstance. But, of course, Lowenfeld says that the narrowing does, can be done at the guilt phase. I mean, there's no, we've never said there is a requirement that it has to be done at the sentencing phase, have we? No, no, there isn't, Your Honor. And, and the, the court has, has not required that where there has been a sufficiently narrow definition of first-degree murder or death eligibility. And I would submit that in last term, the case that uh, this court reviewed from, the, um, from Idaho, uh, the, the definition of death eligibility there was considerably narrower than what Tennessee has. And yet this court still required the aggravating circumstances in that situation to genuinely narrow the class. But of the I, in, 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 in a raid, Mr. Uh, Stebbins, the challenge was that the aggravating circumstance was too vague, wasn't it? Yes, but the it court... wasn't whether you had to have an aggravating circumstance. Well, the, the court went on after determining vagueness to discuss that state very plainly that not only must the... Uh, aggravating circumstance be definite, but it must genuinely narrow and do so on a principled basis, citing to Zant versus Stevens primarily for that proposition. And this court has held where a state uses aggravating circumstances to genuinely narrow, whether they have to or not, where they do, they have to narrow in a principled manner and they have to define a class of persons that's more culpable than another class. Here, you have one class of equally culpable, as defined by the Tennessee legislature, first-degree murderers, automatically subject to the death penalty, and the other class is not so automatically subjected to the death penalty. Mr. Stebbins, just a yes. question of Tennessee law. Is, is a non-premeditated killing in the course of a felony other than those listed murder under Tennessee law? A non-premeditated killing during the course of a, a, a non-listed Unlisted felony. Um, the fact that it was committed during a, another felony that's not listed in the first-degree murder statute would have no effect on it. There is no second-degree felony murder in Tennessee. So it wouldn't be murder at all? Correct. It might be involuntary manslaughter, but it well, how, be how, Are you sure that's the correct answer, Mr. Stevens? Certainly, at, at common law, Justice Souter's hypothesis, an intentional but not premeditated killing was traditional second-degree murder. Tennessee doesn't regard that as, as murder? Uh, it, perhaps I got the, the hypothetical wrong. Well, I, I, I may have misunderstood his hypo. No, I, 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 my, my hypo was it is, it is a non-premeditated killing and it is not committed in the course of one of the listed felonies, can that be murder under Tennessee? If, if it was an intentional murder, yeah. it would be murder. So there, so there is, an, in, there, there is a, a narrowing, then, that does indeed go on. Yeah, but the, the fact it would require intent, and, and the, the fact that a non-listed felony was also committed would have no effect at all on, 
on the determination that it's murder. It's irrelevant. The fact of the felony would be irrelevant, but it would still be classified as murder if it was an intentional killing. If it was an intentional killing, it would be classified as second-degree murder. That's correct, Your Honor. If the Court has no further questions, thank you. Counsel, as I understand your argument, just before you subside, Justice Ginsburg asked you a question about robbery with an intentional murder and robbery with a reckless murder. I take it, let's have a third hypothetical. Let's say there's just a sniper who does not enter the house. He kills the homeowner intentionally. That person must be subject to the death penalty only if there is an aggravating circumstance, correct? That's correct. And what you're saying is that they are equally culpable and that this is the differential that's unconstitutional. So you have to say basically that a felony is not a sufficient aggravator. I'm saying a felony is not a sufficient aggravator where the underlying crime is felony murder. So you're not challenging it as an aggravator for the premeditated murder? No, I'm not, Your Honor. I'm not making that point at all. A felony is a valid aggravator if the underlying crime is not felony murder. The only constitutional problem with this is it's due, well, because it elevates. Going back to Justice Ginsburg's hypothetical about a felony murderer who in one case is reckless and the other case is deliberately kills. Yes. Would you say that it's irrational to say that the one who is reckless is less culpable than the one who killed deliberately? Is it irrational to say that the, no. In fact, traditionally the one who is reckless, has killed recklessly, has been held to be less culpable than the one who has killed premeditatedly. Would you say the contrary view would be irrational? And if you don't say it, why don't you say it? Well, yes, I would. I think arising out of many years of jurisprudence is that felony with intent or with recklessness, no intent or with recklessness, the only way they are made as equally culpable as a premeditated murder is through the fact of a felony. This elevates them to the equivalent of a premeditated murder. And that's the way the Tennessee system works. Surely you're not suggesting that every time a state creates an aggravator, it is acting unconstitutionally if it has not included as an aggravator something that is even worse than the aggravators it has included. Is that what you're arguing? That unless the state comes forth with a full-blown system of all aggravators in their proper order? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm arguing. They put one aggravator here. There may be things that are even worse. What the Tennessee Supreme Court has said, though, is that they can't do that under the Tennessee Constitution. It's irrational under the Tennessee Constitution, regardless of whether it is under the Eighth Amendment. Thank you, Mr. Stebbins. General Burson, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. First, it's our position that following Lowenfield, that whether you call it an aggravator, if the circumstances are described in the offense itself that meet the goal of narrowing the jury's discretion or if they're described in an aggravator, that fulfills the Eighth Amendment purpose. Do you follow the part of Lowenfield that says to pass constitutional muster, a capital sentencing scheme must genuinely narrow the class of persons eligible for the death penalty? You agree with that, don't you? Yes, and we would suggest that this does. 
Going to Justice Ginsburg's uh, hypothetical, uh, this hypothetical approves the deficiency in the, in the Tennessee court decision. Yes, both the reckless killer and the intentional killer in the course of a, uh, uh, a robbery, a house robbery, um, are subject to the death penalty. Uh, there's nothing constitutionally that says they shouldn't be subject to the death penalty. And Tennessee did not, this is the point, they did not invalidate the felony murder aggravator or the, the, the felony murder aggravating circumstance. What they have done is exactly what the last part of the discussion was after saying in the opinion and after this court has said uh, uh, previously, particularly in Tyson, that a reckless killer can be equally culpable to a premeditated killer. The Tennessee court, in discussing the constitutionality of death for felony murder, said the exact same thing. And now what they're suggesting is that you've got to, you, you are more culpable in some way if the murder was premeditated. It would have been one thing if they had invalidated the felony murder aggravator or the use of felony murder as a death-eligible device, uh, but they didn't. And that is the illogic uh, of the opinion, starting from the premise that they are equally culpable. Uh, General, do you think that Tyson holds that recklessness is equally culpable with uh, intent, or does it merely hold that the recklessness in that case was sufficient to cross the constitutional threshold? I think it's, it's clear in the opinion of the case that what it said is that recklessness could be equally culpable to premeditated murders, and there were a number of examples. In this case, this case proves that point. There could in be that case, there were three other aggravating circumstances. In this Tyson. Yes, in this case, there was another aggravating circumstance of heinous, uh, atrocious... Well, but your argument doesn't depend on that. It, it certainly doesn't. But if this killing were reckless, if this person plunged a knife into the chest of this person rec recklessly and not with premeditation, then that certainly proves the point that this recklessness could rise to the, uh, to the culpability of any intentional killing or any premeditated killing. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Thank you, General Burson. The case is submitted.